potentially solving a cold case should never be a sad or depressing event. This is the Veritas 7 True Crime Podcast with your host, Kurt Dillon. This podcast is like nothing else out there. It's true crime, but we don't present that in a sad or morose kind of manner. The Veritas 7 features the most interactive and immersive true crime podcasting experience ever imagined. Our whole goal is engagement with our audience. That's before, during, and after we record each episode. The whole purpose of this show is to actually try and solve these crimes. And we use real police documents to do that. Don't forget to like and subscribe, so you'll know right away when each new episode goes live. This is the only true crime podcast I know of where the audience can actually help solve the crime. We are all about trying to solve these crimes. Our whole team is dedicated to uncovering the truth. That's where the name Veritas comes from. Let's get into the action. Take it away, Kurt. Five, four, three, two, one. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining me, your host, Kurt Dillon, for this, a slightly different episode of the Veritas 7. We're going to depart from our normal format a little bit tonight because we're going to be talking about a case that's actually already been resolved. Who did it, how they did it, when they did it, where they did it, and why they did it have all been answered. The problem with this case is that none of them have been answered to anybody's real satisfaction. Also, this case is so shockingly horrific in its scope, in its depravity, and in its wickedness that when I came across this case and I learned about the nuances of it, there was no way I could not do a show on it. It's that disturbing. So. Even though it's a little bit different from what we normally do, I hope you'll all enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and buckle your seatbelts, America, because this episode is shocking. In all my years of being around these kind of cases, this is by far the first and only one quite like this. So sit back, buckle up, and stand by. Veritas means truth, and the truth starts now. I can't believe the price of dog food is getting outrageous. And if I want to save a few bucks, I have to carry a 50-pound bag of kibble up the stairs into my apartment. There has to be a better way. There is. I'm so glad you said something. You poor thing, we've been using TummyTimePetSupplies.com for over a year now. Tummy Time Pet Supplies? What's that? TummyTimePetSupplies.com. They have all the major brands and most smaller brands as well. In fact, we not only get all of our dog and cat supplies there, but they also have everything we need for Brett's chinchilla, Ashley's ferrets, Haley's iguana, and even Jordan's pet tarantula. Wow, they sell all that? And more. But what's best about TummyTimePetSupplies.com is that they ship everything through Amazon Fulfillment. That means that everything you order gets delivered right to your door, and if you're an Amazon Prime customer, shipping is almost always free. That really sounds incredible, but I bet it's super expensive. Mark just got laid off and I can't afford all those special conveniences for a while. Nonsense. In fact, Tummy Time offers some of the most reasonable prices anywhere. You really have to be a whiz and coupon shopping to beat their everyday prices, and when they run sales, forget about it. I can't believe it, an incredible selection, great prices, and right to your door service. So what do you think? I think the next time I buy anything for my pets I'm going to TummyTimePetSupplies.com. I think that's a very wise choice. Me too. That's right. For all your pet needs it's TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Remember TummyTimePetSupplies.com.
Hi there, everybody, and thank you for joining me, your host, Kurt Dillon, for this, the fifth episode of the Veritas 7 True Crime Podcast. I'm here today with co-hosts, Ellie Sherrill. Hey, everyone, this is Ellie. And Matt Sloniker. Hey, everybody. And April Hill. Hello, everyone, it's April. Today, folks, we're going to digress a little bit from the regular format of our show. I don't like doing that. I really don't. But this case is just so emotionally gut-wrenching that when one of our staff, April, brought the case to my attention, I just couldn't, I couldn't not do a show about this. Now, for those of you that may or may not be familiar, this is the case of Junko Furuta. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not because Japanese... They emphasize different syllables than we do, so I'm probably just completely crucified her name. But she is a 17-year-old Japanese high school student that, back in the 80s, was ruthlessly tricked into trusting somebody that her instincts already clearly told her that she shouldn't trust. That person went ahead and abducted her, and not only abducted her, but kept her and repeatedly gang-raped her. The estimates are... Anywhere between 400 and 500 times between his group of four good friends and countless other individuals over the course of the 44 days that she was kept in captivity before her body gave out and she finally died. Over those 44 days, there was almost a never-ending stream of attackers that did unmentionable, unspeakable things. Rape was a pleasantry compared to some of the things that were done to this girl. And when I saw that, I I said, you know, awareness, we usually, very rarely are we ever going to highlight cases that didn't happen in the United States either. This case happened in Japan. But like I said, out of all of the true crime cases that I've seen in my life, And there have been a lot of them. This is, without a doubt, the most horrific, inhuman case I have ever seen or laid my eyes on. I'll warn you all ahead of time, the images that we have that go along with this podcast in the usual place on our website under Scene of the Crime and Victim Photos. Some of them are just sad because the girl was so beautiful. Some of them will just make you angry because you'll see the Steps that the Japanese government and Japanese law enforcement went to protect the identities and the reputations of these young men that brutalized this girl for 44 days. The notorious book about the case was called 44 Days in Hell. I have not read it yet. I I don't know if I'm going to bring myself to read it. I've learned enough through my requests for information from uh, the Japanese uh, authorities and media stations that I think I know enough and I'm going to have a hard enough time sleeping as it is. You know, it was enough that when I saw it, it made me want to reach out to my daughter uh, right away, my, my all my daughters. I, this is just, um, it, it's unfathomable when you hear the details of what happened in this case. You just, you're not going to be the same again. So that being said, with the best preface that I could possibly put out there, that we definitely strongly recommend viewer discretion when it comes to looking at the visual aids that are going to accompany this podcast. Also, some of the topics that we have to talk about are going to be crude. There's really not a pleasant or polite, politically correct way to explain and describe the things that were done to this girl. I We are going to save you a lot of the details, but some of them are going to be necessary to convey the sheer obscenity of what happened to her. So please forgive us for that going in. 
and understand uh, before you go any further that uh, we definitely advise caution. If you have a weak stomach or you don't like to listen to those kind of things, probably a good idea for you to skip on to the next episode. So all that being said, folks, I know you all had the same kind of knee jerk and gut wrenching reaction that I did. Give me your thoughts. Share with me uh, what you think about Junko here and uh, her plight. First of all, when I first heard about this case, actually scared to listen to it. Uh, I guess out of what what amazes me is that while all this was going on, the parents of this young guy, they had to have had a clue what was happening. I mean, they, they can't have not known. There's definitive evidence that we have that's going to be in the evidence reports that are on the website accompanying the podcast that they absolutely knew. And when they were questioned under oath at the trials, they said that they were afraid of the son's link to the Yakuza, which is why they just decided to look the other way. Okay, so is that like a Japanese gang? One of the most brutal organized crime rings in the world, probably two or three times more deadly than the Italian mafia, is uh, the Japanese Yakuza, where, you know, uh, if they don't kill you, they're going to maim you and take off body parts. It's a crazy case that this poor girl, the case was originally called, you know, the Japanese, they, they don't like short names for anything. The case was originally called the Concrete Encased High School Girl Murder Case. Uh, just imagine what that would look like on the masthead of a newspaper. But right. that was originally what the case was dubbed in Japan. And the perpetrators, unlike... The other cases, this case has been solved, although not to anybody's satisfaction, especially anybody that knew the girl or her family. Just unbelievable. Their names, again, I'm probably going to crucify them, but I'm going to read them out to you. The ringleader of the group of four was four young Japanese men. Hiroshi Miyano, who was 18 years old. He was the ringleader. Joe Ogura, who was 17. He changed his name. We'll go and we'll get into that a little bit later on in the show. But when he ultimately got out of prison, he changed his name out of, uh, you know, not wanting to be associated with her death. We then have Shinji Minato. He was 16. And last but not least, we have Yasushi Watan Watanabe. And he was 17. So those are the four young men that were responsible for this horrific crime. We will set the timeline and the scene for you. As best I can. On November 25th of 1998, Junko was riding her bicycle home from work. She was on her way uh, home and anxious to watch the uh, latest episode of the hot Japanese dramatic television show uh, that was hot at that time. So she was pedaling pretty quick. She had told people at her, where she worked that she was excited to get home and see the episode that was airing that night. So she was riding her bicycle down a pretty well-populated road. If you look on our website, you'll be able to see the photo of the road that she was actually traveling down. We have it. She was accosted by a young man that she didn't know. He kicked her while she was on her bicycle, knocking the bicycle over and knocking her sprawling off of her feet. Ironically, Miyano, who had not that long previously asked her out on a date, and she flatly and coldly rejected him, managed to come out of nowhere and save the day, so to speak, rescuing her and scaring off her attacker. When the attacker fled, Miano pretended to be, you know, a caring citizen and asked her if she would like him to escort her the rest of the way home. Being shaken up and scared, the frail 17-year-old said, okay, and off they went. They went a little further down the road, turned a couple of times, and entered an industrial district of the town. 
When they did, that's when Miano sprang into action and accosted Junko himself and brought her into a warehouse. A photo of that warehouse is also on the website under crime scene photos where he proceeded to rape her brutally. But her experience and her ordeal wasn't even close to done. He then invited three of his friends over to the warehouse where they all gang raped her repeatedly for what's estimated to be several hours, according to their testimony trial. Finally, they decided that they weren't going to let her go. And they instead brought her to Mayuno's house where she was kept in the attic for an unbelievable 44 days. During that time, Miyano's parents who owned the house were in and out. They had seen the girl numerous times. Initially, they had tried to play it off and told the parents that Junko was Miano's girlfriend. But it didn't take long for them to see the physical abuse, the scars, the welts, the bruises on the girl's growingly emaciated body before they realized what was going on. As they would later testify under oath, they decided to turn a blind eye to what their son and his friends were doing because their son had ties to the vicious and brutal Japanese organized crime ring, the Yakuza. Whether that's true or not, obviously nobody will ever know. But be that as it may, for the next 44 days, not only was Junko brutally raped and beaten in ways that are unfathomable to even the most avid horror fan out there but she was repeatedly gang raped she was repeatedly subject to other visitors and strangers coming to his house and having their way with her and, and gang raping her as well as being violated by all manner of inanimate objects brutal sharp objects she was cut in places i can't even mention on the air violated by burning candles and searing flames in places i can't mention on the air she was cut she was beaten she was hung by her wrists and dangled above the ground and beaten like a punching bag not only with fists, but with golf clubs and all just all kinds of objects. So much so that her body was so brutalized and so broken that she stopped being able to go downstairs to the restroom and started just relieving herself on the floor and on herself if she was laying in bed. Reports by the men themselves under oath while they were at their own trials testified that on numerous occasions, Junko begged, for, begged them to kill her. And that she was so sad that she didn't get an opportunity to watch the, that episode of that TV show that she wanted. That's an important detail, and we'll, we'll, I'll tell you why later. But the brutality went on and went on and went on. Towards the end of the 44 days, it got so bad that when they would punch her or kick her or strike her, the damaged tissue would rupture through her skin and seep blood and pus just through the blow, through her skin. Did that stop them from hitting her? No. Instead, what they did is they donned gloves, rubber gloves, plastic gloves, operating gloves, and they continued to beat her and pummel her with their fists and with objects and weapons, protected from getting her blood and pus on their hands. So after 44 days of this, Thankfully, her body had finally had enough and she succumbed to her injury. But that wasn't even close to the end of the brutality that she was to experience in life and in death. Before we get into the details of what happened after her death, let's hear what our 
co-hosts have to say about um, their take on this unimaginable case. I guess coming from the perspective of being a parent, my first question is, and I know there's some small detail on her disappearance, but within that first 24 hours, was there posters put out um, for their missing daughter? What are these parents thinking when she doesn't come home that day? Um, if we have insight and information on that journey from the beginning. Yes. Yes, we do. The circumstances surrounding her abduction and her torture were so intricate and so convoluted that they had actually made her call her parents on the phone and tell her parents that she was okay and that she ran away from home. So the parents wouldn't worry and didn't immediately file a police report about her being missing because she told them that she had ran away from home. They heard it from her own mouth on the telephone and that bought the attackers more time than they should have had. At least 16 days to be exact. After 16 days, somebody had mentioned to police that she was being held captive there and being brutalized. Somebody with a conscience had gone into the house and seen her, interacted with her in some way, shape or form. Uh, they were making her sleep out on the outside balcony of the house naked. So, and it was cold at that time in Japan. So it's also possible that somebody that just passers by noticed that she was up there and contacted authorities. But uh, 16 days into her ordeal, the police showed up at the house and they asked to search the house and inspect to see if a girl was in fact being kept there against her wishes. The parents, knowing that the girl was upstairs, told the police officers, absolutely come in. Would you like me to, you know, would you like me to make you a cup of coffee or a cup of tea uh, while you search the house? You know, we have nothing to hide, whatever. The police officers, unfortunately, took that abundant willingness of the parents to have them search the house as proof that there was in fact nobody being hidden in the house. So they declined to search and instead went about their way with a sincere thanks to Miyato's parents for offering to let them search the house. If those cops had done their job, as with so many of the cases that we evaluate, she would not only be alive and she would have survived the ordeal, but the ordeal only would have taken less than half of the time that it actually took. As brutal as she was already treated at that point, she would have been spared countless violations if those cops had just done their job and gone in and searched the house. Are there accounts of the parents after the first call that their daughter had spoken to them that she had ran away? You know, this must have been out of character. Um, are there any accounts of then after that period of time of the parents saying she contacted us again or they did just didn't hear from her? For those 16 days and and we're counting those 16 days is when the, the cops came to the house but i wonder if they had heard from their daughter again after that point and was there an active missing persons report the way that the reports that we have access to are worded it makes it sound like in the first week or two of junko's captivity the perpetrators forced her to communicate with her parents several times and I guess for the safety of her own life. And there was one report that said that the guy, Miano, threatened her that if she wasn't convincing in her arguments that she wanted to run away and she didn't care for them, 
and didn't want to live with them anymore, that he he and his Yakuza would brutally kill her parents. And I believe the quote that was in one of the reports, but it was only in one. Most of the things that we're talking about are corroborated in several reports. I only read in one report where he told them, if you think what we do to you is bad, imagine what I'm going to do to your mother. So that, I guess, put the fear into her, so to speak, for lack of a better term. And uh, she went along with it and was convincing in her oral argument to her parents over the phone that, you know, she couldn't stand them and didn't want to be anywhere near them and that she was running away and she would, you know, she would probably eventually come home, but uh, no time soon. That was the gist of that particular report anyway. And as a result of that, her parents did contact the police, but the police... When they were honest and they said that Junko had called them numerous times and told them that she ran away and and wasn't coming home, the police declined to to intervene. They just deemed her as another teen runaway. And that's just what it was going to be like, like pretty much exactly what happens here in America quite far too often. And that mistake there led to the despicable rape and torture of this young lady for an unimaginable amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a month and a half. It's a month and a half of living hell. 44 Days in Hell was a great title for that book that was written about the case um, 20 years ago now. Yeah, and um, just going back to the policemen, I mean, if they would have just gone in and, and did a little bit more searching, who knows? I mean, if she would have survived or not, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, if the cops saw her, obviously they would have taken her home. Yeah, You know definitely. what I mean? It, it, it would have ended there. It's crazy that, you know, they and they tell you in these reports, in every single one of the reports, uh, and there's like six of them that I read that said that, you know, they reiterate slightly different verbiage how the cops failed that day to dec- by declining to search the house. What all of them also say at the end, just as if it was a sidebar or footnote, is that once this case was resolved, all of those officers were fired. Really? Wow. <laughs> That's it? They were fired? Right. That's it? I mean, that's it's pretty wild. I mean, obviously, they have to tell us that these people were fired. Thank God, at least, the corrupt and inept Japanese police department at that time didn't let them keep their jobs. But at the same point, there's no mention of lawsuits or criminal charges. Well, do you think that these police officers knew that these boys were supposedly a part of the the Yakuza members? I mean, would that make a difference? That's always possible. The report doesn't say that. But whether or not they knew, obviously any sworn police officer has a legal obligation once they raise that hand and, and, uh, you know, take that oath. Well, you would think. That they're going to investigate. So unless somebody managed to threaten them on the schneid and let them know there was going to be repercussions to them or their families if they went through with the search, then it might have been a case of, you know what, maybe fired is better. I I mean, it's, it's just, it's unfathomable to think, especially when you're dealing with teenage kids. You know, you're not dealing with experienced Silver Fox style James Bond adversaries, you're, right. you're you're talking with kids that the oldest one is 18. So, I mean, even being a gang member, they're a bunch of punks. And what's even more infuriating 
is that the legal system, the judicial system there in Japan, did everything that they could to protect the identities and the reputations of these young men throughout the entire accusatory and trial process. To this day, all of the photos that I was able to obtain, which are on the website, except for Miyano, who was 18 years old at the time these crimes were committed, have black bars across the perpetrator's eyes blacking out their identities so you can see their facial structure but you can't really tell what they look like because there's this big black bar redacting most of their facial characteristics however despite the fact that junko was only 17 when she died never reached her 18th birthday there were never any attempts made in the media or in the judicial system to hide her identity to cover up her face or to in any way alleviate the shame the horrible shame that any human would be mortification there's no other word for it to have everybody know just how brutalized you were and the myriad things that were done to her that were i mean they made sadism and the marquis de sade look like big bird well and the precedence that this sets to japan as far as kids under the age of 18 having the ability to commit such a heinous crime and then not really see the follow-through on the consequences and almost see them being protected is downright terrifying because this sends a message that you can brutally rape, torture, kill, and the justice system is going to mildly protect you if you're not 18. And that's absolutely true. And what happened in this case, the judicial circuit there in Japan decided that they were going to try all of them as adults. So they weren't tried in juvenile court. However, they have another layer of jurisprudence there in Japan that applies to sentencing and the harshness of the proceedings uh, that's applied to children and people who are intellectually incapacitated. And these children fit under those prosecutorial guidelines. So automatically, from the time the case was filed and they were charged and arrested for the crime, they were already treated with kid gloves and the potential damage immediately because of that could not exceed 20 years. The maximum sentence that any of them could receive at that time was 20 years. And the only one who was eligible for the 20 years was Miano because of the fact he was 18 when he committed the crime. Ultimately, the first time around, he was convicted and he was sentenced to 17 years in prison. And then he did something to piss somebody off. I don't remember exactly what it said in the wording, but it'll be in the reports that are on the website. If uh, you at home are following along with the case as we're going along. But he did something to piss somebody off. And they ended up tacking on the other three years on his sentence. So he ended up getting sentenced to the 20 years. Obviously, he did not do all 20 because nobody does. And then he got out. And when he got out, the, by the way, the other three guys all got substantially less time than he got. I think the next largest sentence after him was seven years. Another one got, I think, 10 years in a juvenile. It wasn't in a juvenile like prison, but it was in a juvenile like um, supervision camp. Where he would, he was basically on parole. He basically got like ten years of parole, where he had to, you know, he had to check in, and he he wasn't allowed to, you know, 
drink any alcohol or ingest any drugs or any of that kind of stuff. He had to report in on regular basis, but he didn't do any prison time. So you have the one, the one youngest that was only 15 at the time of the crime or 16. He didn't do any prison time. And you had the other guys that all did next to nothing. Uh, one, one did three years. The other one did the 10 years in the juvenile uh, supervision under juvenile supervision. And like I said, Miano was the only one that really got any kind of punishment getting sentenced to 20 years in prison. Out of which I think he did 15. But all of them got out. And with the exception of one, all of them kept on with their criminal ways. They didn't relent. They still kept doing drugs. This group of guys, rape was really their thing. That's how they ended up getting caught in the first place. While they had Junko chained up in the attic, they decided to abduct another girl. Because towards the end, the reports are that Junko's body was so badly abused and secreting blood and pus and all kinds of other infectious materials that they had lost interest in raping her. But they still didn't want to let her go. So they still beat her. (laughs) So they still beat her. They still kept her and they still beat her. And, And they didn't let her go, even though they didn't rape her anymore. Because she smelled. Her body was just open sores everywhere and and they just they had no sexual attraction to her anymore so instead what they did is they went and they heisted another 19 year old girl this time and they brought her back to the house and they brutalized her for an extended period of time though not weeks or months Uh, but i do believe it was days i do believe they kept her in the house brutalizing her for three or four days before she finally managed to get away when she got away she went right to the police and told the police everything that was going on and so on and so forth. And the police now finally went and filed charges against the, uh, not filed charges, but went and investigate these four guys. When they got Miuno in the interrogation room and they were grilling him about this 19-year-old girl that they had abducted and brutally raped and beaten, but nowhere to the extent that they did Junko, he was mistakenly under the impression the 17-year-old Oguna, uh, Joe Oguna, had told the authorities, had ratted him out, basically, and told the authorities about Junko being kept for a month and a half in the attic above their second floor. So trying to get ahead of it, he decided he was going to confess. So he went ahead and he told them all about Junko when Junko wasn't even the target of interest in the case. They were interested in the 19-year-old. They didn't know anything about Junko. So he went ahead and he confessed. And sure enough, now this time the cops went back in full force, but there was no body there. So they went and they checked and they got samples. And it was only when they decided to examine and grill Oguna and they read to him Miano's statement saying that he believed Oguna ratted him out, that Oguna thought he better get ahead of it. And he went ahead and told them where they could find Junko's body. At this point, several months had elapsed since the time of her death to the time that she was encased in a steel 55-gallon drum. The drum was then filled with liquid concrete and sealed. And then once it was sealed, a blue plastic protective sleeve was placed over the metal barrel I guess to protect it from eventually leaking, you know, if it had liquid in it, the yard that kept all of these drums where uh, Junko's resting place there would be 
left for several months, it would protect it from rusting and thereby possibly exposing odors and things of that nature. So the plastic was slipped on the, uh, as a sleeve, uh, like a prophylactic outside the metal steel drum, which encased her body in concrete. So as you'll see from the photographs, we have photographs of all of this on the website accompanying the investigation. As you'll see, when they broke open the plastic cover and broke open the drum, you'll see the concrete in there. You'll see little snippets of Junko's body parts. And what I find to be a hauntingly insidious photograph of the barrel with just the top taken off of it and a large wisp of Junko's hair protruding out of the concrete. That's all you can see. It's just a thick wisp of her hair. That beautiful, the beautiful hair. If you if you go on the site, you'll see the photos. We have a lot of photos of Junko uh, in all different poses. Just such a beautiful girl. And it was incredible that lock of her beautiful black hair was protruding from the cement. But as insult on top of injury, when they encased her body in the barrel, they sealed her in there with a VHS videotape of the television show she was desperately trying to get home to watch. Well, that's difficult to um, pass off that any one of these young men uh, had any type of humanity in them whatsoever, and even the smallest part of their pinky finger. I mean, I, I agree. It amazes me how a society, no matter how young the perpetrator is, when you demonstrate... Now, keep in mind, folks, this wasn't that long ago. I mean, yeah, you know, 40 years is a long time. 35 years is a long time. But society in the 80s, especially in the late 80s when this happened, wasn't all that different than it is now. We didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, I mean, technology wasn't the same. We didn't have computers, no internet, that kind of stuff. But a lot of the things that we do now as humans to enjoy ourselves to entertain our families and ourselves is very similar to what it was back then. So to me, learning that these sadistic SOBs were so narcissistic and so uncaring about what they did to this girl that they couldn't even bury her or they didn't even have respect for her corpse after what they had done to her for 44 days. But to add insult on top of injury, salt in the wound, the one thing that she mentioned throughout the entire period of her captivity, they testified under oath at their trials, was that she had mentioned numerous times she wanted to see that episode really bad. And it was like the ultimate slap or spit in the face to Junko Furuta to put a copy of that video in her sealed concrete barrel tomb, which she still never saw. So they buried her body with, or they sealed or encapsulated her remains with the very object that probably kept her sane for most of her captivity was the idea of getting to watch that show. And I think what was just as equally disgusting is the $425,000 in re restorations that they were supposed to get um, Junko's family, they got zero. Yeah. They, zero dollars of that money. Yeah. They sued Junko's parents, 
sued Miyano's parents in civil court there in Japan, and they won, and they were ordered to pay 400 and some thousand dollars. I don't remember the exact number. April probably has it in front of her. Uh, I don't it's know. 425000 um, the, the Minato family was supposed to. Right. Hey. That's that's U.S. dollars in yen. It was eight hundred and thirty-five thousand, oh, I think, or something yen. like that. Yeah, yeah. And what happened is some kind of diversion occurred. That even though they sold their house to pay off that debt that was court ordered, Junko's family never got a dime of that money. That money ended up going to the other younger victims of Miano. Who were his co-defendants through all of this? So his parents, yeah, that's right. You didn't you didn't mishear. I, I'll say it again. His parents were court ordered to pay the sum of eight hundred and thirty something thousand yen, which roughly translates to four hundred and twenty five thousand dollars at that time in 1988-1989 money. And when they paid it, the court instead paid that money. Not to Junko's parents, but to the families of the young men who participated in the crimes and relentlessly gang-raped Junko for 44 days. It was reported later that every penny of that money went on partying for basically getting away with murder. Ogura, the 17-year-old at the time, who changed his name, Ended up marrying the sister of Watanabe, their um, 17-year-old co-defendant. That's uh, Yasushi Watanabe. Ogura changed his name and married Watanabe's sister. So the money stayed right with the victims. The only ones that got penalized financially were Yatami's parents. And the only ones who gained financially were the perpetrators of the crime. There are also reports numerous times that Ogura... When he got in trouble later on in, in life, after getting out of prison and marrying Watanabe's sister, bragged openly and publicly that he got away with murder. And that uh, he threatened people in certain settings that they better watch out because he knows how to kill people and get away with it. Now, as if all of that weren't enough, the violations on this girl just kept racking up. After some sort of mental break and having to sell their house and turn the money over to their son's friends, Miano's mother was so out of touch with reality that she decided to take it out physically on Junko's grave. And you can see on the website, we have a photo of Junko's grave absolutely decimated by Miano's mother. Headstone crushed, rubble everywhere, flowers destroyed. The whole site was just violated. It's the only word that comes to mind. Yeah. So it just, you know, it really struck me that we had to mention this case, even though it's so out of character for the kind of cases that we want to carry and that we're going to highlight going forward in this podcast. We, Obviously, almost it's an unsolved podcast, so all the cases that we're going to handle are either unsolved completely or only partially solved. There are still you know, people out there. 
almost all of the cases that we handle going forward are going to be domestic cases from here inside the United States. I'm sure there are going to be some that we come across that are going to have international ties or possibly even a couple of other ones that emanate from outside of our borders. But for the most part, it's going to be an American-centered podcast of unsolved crimes. This was just, honestly, you know, I'm 52 years old in a week. I love true crime like all of you do. I'm a big uh, true crime junkie. I've read so many of the famous true crime authors. Uh, Anne Rule, huge fan. I love the famous forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht and Dr. Michael Bodden and 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 all of the uh, the well-renowned forensic anthropologists, forensic pathologists, medical examiners, coroners, you name it. I have ingested and reviewed easily a few thousand true crime cases in in my years since I realized that I was fascinated with it and that I wanted to learn more about it and and start taking them in. And I have never, ever encountered a case that even came close to the level of human depravity as the case of Junko Furata. Just unbelievable. Yeah, uh, there was two other guys that had raped her as well that they charged, right? Yes, and that's she true. Got charged for rape, but I didn't see what their prison terms were. Do you know what they were? I believe that they just were required to testify against the other two. One of them ended up violating violating that deal that he made, and I believe he ended up getting ten years. But don't hold me to that. But in the court records, the four perpetrators were known as A, B, C, and D. Junko was originally labeled as E, and the other two perpetrators were labeled as F and G. Everything that they could do to protect the identities of these maniacs. And ironically, it was only when the local media decided that they were not going to shield the names of the suspects or the name of Junko that the court just rolled with it. So the original reports that came out on this case they all used code names for their names letters of the alphabet but only that first one after that first one everybody was referred to by name after that the only difference is wherever photos were shown ironically the suspects had their face blacked out and junko did not and there was one other thing that i don't think came up um miano in 2018 was arrested again for attempted murder uh, because and he rape. beat up a beat up a thirty two year old man. Yeah, he had additional rape charges afterwards too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a whole rap sheet, and then Aguro got in trouble. He got like a seven year sentence for beating up some guy or kidnapping him or something. Yeah. So they, their crime spree is still active, really. None of them really turned their life around. The only one that you don't hear too much about as far as continuing his life of crime is that guy Watanabe who Ogura married his sister and changed his name. But uh, Watanabe, he seemed to stay at least out of big trouble. There were no more murders and rapes for him. Not that I know of anyway, or at least not that he got caught for. I, I mean, that's, 
torture doesn't even do it justice. Like, I want to say it's physical torture, but I mean, it, it's so beyond torture because that's emotional, mental, psychological, and physical just agony. So why did Japan let them plead to this bullshit charge of... Because they were kids when the crime was committed, and unfortunately, some committing bodily injury that resulted in death. Yes, instead of murder, because they couldn't be convicted of murder. They could be charged with murder as juveniles. And we have weird shit on the books like that here too. However, we've changed that just in the last, but only just in the last couple of decades. So in 1988, 1989, if that same crime happened here in the United States. Guess what? They'd have gotten off too. It's only just recently, I want to say in the last 20 years, since I graduated college, the la- I graduated my last college at Columbia in 97. It's been since 97, when I was pre-law, that these laws came into effect where, depending upon the heinousness of the crime, they can absolutely charge juveniles as adults. With no restriction like what was on this case. We have now case law here in America where 13, 14, I think there's even a 12 in there somewhere, brutally attacked somebody and murdered them and tried to cover it up. And the only law that's on the books here in America is that if you're under 18 at the time you brutally kill somebody, you can't get the death penalty. That's yeah, it's that redheaded kid states. that has the huge thick glasses, I think. Yeah. Killed somebody. I can't remember his name. And he and he got life without. There's quite a few that are 13, 14, and 15, but I think they're I'm pretty sure there's one that was 12 too. And they just they get life without. The, the only benefit that they get for being underage is that they can't get the needle. Eric Smith. Eric, yep, there you go. That's right. Another 13. case I would 13, okay. I'm I'm he might have been 13 when he was convicted, but I think he was 12 when he committed the crime. There, there was one of them I'm pretty sure was 12 when he committed the crime. I remember I remember specifically using the word preteen. Interesting stuff. But then again, when I first read over the yogurt shop murders, one of the defense people tried to say in there, in one of their arguments to defend Scott, that there's no way that young teenage boys could do things that are so horrific to these four girls. He doesn't see any path. Teens that weren't brutalized their whole lives could, at that age, do those kind of, commit those kind of atrocities on these four teenage girls. Well, I got to tell you, all somebody got to do is stick the case of Junko here in their face to learn that that isn't true. Because, you know, you could really make the argument if you're into that whole supernatural thing and you're into the metaphysical and all of that, you could make an argument that these these four bastards are from Satan. That that's spawn of Satan right here. I cannot imagine anything that a human could do that would be more atrocious and violative on a person's body than what these people did to this girl. My imagination whips up some pretty heinous shit. I my imagination can't come up with anything worse than what they did. Well, and the fact that there was four of them. I mean, this wasn't just like one person that was severely demented. This, this was all four of them doing these things and then including other people throughout the, the 44 days to join in. And, and, I, and I agree with your point in the fact that the yogurt shop, you know, defense is saying, oh, that's impossible for boys this age. Well, like you said, we've got this case right here that points out perfectly 
and and you have enabling parents too who yeah. are so angry that they have any involvement that they're destroying the grave of a girl that had already been so tortured and disrespecting the family now you understand where the bad behaviors stemming from oh yeah oh exactly oh, that's ridiculous another thing that i had mentioned on another case that i was discussing with april if you'll remember these people are doing this 24 7 365 like there was no break they kept her captive in their bedroom and were like going at this all day and all night even the worst serial killer Dahmer and bundy and whatever even they only did their shit part-time they lived some semblance of a, of a regular life most of the day. And they only did their twisted shit a few hours here and there. They had jobs. They went and did whatever. Not these bastards. Not these bastards. These bastards lived it. They lived in it. They never left it. They never stopped it. They never walked away from it. And by all accounts, they never took a break from it. That is just a whole different breed of dirtbag. I cannot imagine enveloping yourself in your psychosis without break or respite for not hours, not even days, but months nonstop to live that they have it, evil. The, the only word that I can think of, they have to be inherently evil right down to the double helix in their DNA. They have to be evil to the core. There's just, if you have any, these, any level shred of human decency and morality in your body, anything, if you ever loved anything or anyone in your life other than yourself, there's no way you could do that to another person. You might be able to do it in a fit of anger, in a fit of rage, in whatever the case may be. Any one of us under the right set of circumstances can kill. Anybody. Doesn't matter who it is. You put us in the right circumstance, we can kill. And we can do it brutally and not even lose sleep over it. But you can't live in that adrenaline rush forever. That's a temporary psychosis. You're in and you're out. And then when you calm down, if you're even a semi-well-adjusted human, you're going to have guilt and remorse for what you did. And by all indications, these bastards had none of it. Very shocking. And thank you, April, for bringing that to our attention so that I learned about the case. And I spent a lot of my educational life learning about human depravity and learning about maladjusted humans and human deviant behavior and all kinds of things like that. But in my wildest imagination, I could never even imagine atrocities like that and make them up. And I write fiction a lot of my, you know, for a lot of my life, I write it and I edit it and I, and I help other people write theirs. I just, I can't imagine truth is stranger than fiction. I, I can't, you know, if, if anybody wrote a fictional novel, about what happened to that girl, it would suck because nobody would believe it. Right. Nobody would believe that anybody's capable of doing that to another person, especially another person that you don't know. To go on a, on a rampant rampage, homicidal maniac killing spree, you gotta hate somebody. Just, just wild. No, I'm, I'm just. Yeah, I'm like speechless. It's uh, uh, nauseating. Yeah. So awful. It's going to be a great show. This is going to be a great show. I bet you we're going to get so, a lot of. Uh, bet you we're going to get a lot of downloads on this, even though it's just a teaser. I bet you we're going to get a lot of downloads. But it's awesome, folks. Thanks for joining us again for this teaser episode of the poor and unfortunate case of Junko Furuta. 
Um, we appreciate you being with us. We hope that the we managed to bring this horrific content to you in a way that was at least digestible from some kind of exoskeleton kind of manner that you were able to brace yourself against the atrocities that were done to this girl. But this is the nature of true crime. And I just feel that we would be remiss in our responsibility as true crime journalists if we didn't bring to you these kind of cases that nobody wants to talk about, that nobody wants to think about. Because in my experience, if these guys are out there, there are others just like them. I don't know that there's any one two, three, or four humans that are worse and more despicable than the rest of humanity. But if there is, these four would certainly qualify. Very rarely are there outliers in humanity. If these four could do it, chances are there's more, lots more, that are also capable of doing it. They might just be better better at hiding it. So... After this episode, definitely hug your kids a little closer. Tell your spouse and your parents that you love them a little bit more. Keep your eyes open for the unexpected. I know as a father of eight that we can't always protect our kids the way we want to protect them. Um, We also have to give them the right and the freedom and the ability to live and become and develop into their own humans. We can only guide them on that on that journey, but so much. But I would challenge all of you listening to this to let your kids at least understand what happened to Junko. And to know that because it happened to her, it can happen to them too. Thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate it. We look forward to the next episode. Again, if you want to be part of the discussion, please join our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the Veritas 7. And be sure to visit our website where we have a treasure trove of case materials that support all the cases that we go over both in our teaser episodes and in the regular episodes when they launch here in just a couple of weeks. So definitely go to the website www.theveritas7.com and be sure to click on the links for case evidence and case materials you're not going to be disappointed that you did I can't believe the price of dog food is getting outrageous and if I want to save a few bucks I have to carry a 50 pound bag of kibble up the stairs into my apartment there has to be a better way there is I'm so glad you said something. You poor thing, we've been using TummyTimePetSupplies.com for over a year now. Tummy Time Pet Supplies? What's that? TummyTimePetSupplies.com. They have all the major brands and most smaller brands as well. In fact, we not only get all of our dog and cat supplies there, but they also have everything we need for Brett's chinchilla, Ashley's ferrets, Haley's iguana, and even Jordan's pet tarantula. Wow, they sell all that? And more. But what's best about TummyTimePetSupplies.com is that they ship everything through Amazon Fulfillment. That means that everything you order gets delivered right to your door, and if you're an Amazon Prime customer, shipping is almost always free. That really sounds incredible, but I bet it's super expensive.
Mark just got laid off and I can't afford all those special conveniences for a while. Nonsense. In fact, tummy time offers some of the most reasonable prices anywhere. You really have to be a whiz and coupon shopping to beat their everyday prices, and when they run sales, forget about it. I can't believe it, an incredible selection, great prices, and right to your door service. So what do you think? I think the next time I buy anything for my pets I'm going to TummyTimePetSupplies.com. I think that's a very wise choice. Me too. That's right. For all your pet needs it's TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Remember TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of the Veritas 7. For all of us, including me, your host, Kurt Dillon, I want to thank you all for tuning in for this episode and for all the ones to come. Again, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe so that you'll be the first to know when our new episodes go live. For all of us here at the Veritas 7, have a great night. Take care. God bless. Talk to you soon. So turn the car around and leave Meet me underneath the trees I can that we made And with our hands we'll make the best Of the life that we have left And we will never say goodbye Heaven sent, and I've never felt this way.